From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, is nearly 40 years old. And from the very beginning, it has protected the public poorly. Toxic Substances Control Act, when it passed in 1976, it had a key flaw in it. For all the chemicals that were on the market at the time, it basically said these are presumed fine unless the EPA can prove that there's a problem. New versions are working their way through Congress, but critics say they still fall short. Also, as Thanksgiving approaches, farmers are saying old-fashioned heritage turkeys are flying out of their coolers. Almost everybody who ordered a turkey from us last year has ordered two turkeys. So I don't know whether they're thinking they're going to pop one in the freezer and keep it for Christmas or something like that, but people raved about the turkeys. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We begin our broadcast today with Tosca but not the famous melodramatic opera by Puccini. No, this Tosca is the Toxic Substances Control Act of 1976 that lists some 85,000 chemicals in its inventory, though there is plenty of melodrama in the decade-long effort to modernize it. In fact, there was practically a deathbed scene when the long-term proponent of Tosca reform, New Jersey Democratic Senator Frank Lautenberg, cut a deal with Louisiana Republican David Vitter just days before Lautenberg's death. But another longtime proponent, California Democrat Barbara Boxer, denounced that PAC as a giveaway to industry and turned against some provisions of current Tosca reform legislation now before the Senate. Andy Egregious, director of Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families, predicts the bill will pass, but he thinks it's too weak. Andy, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. The Toxic Substances Control Act, I believe, was done back in 1976 and really hasn't been revised since then. Why has it been stuck for so long? Well, the Toxic Substance Control Act, when it passed in 1976, it had a key flaw in it, in that it basically said that the government was going to require an approval process for chemicals that were invented from that point forward that industry wanted to bring to the market. But for all the chemicals that were on the market at the time, it basically said these are presumed fine unless the EPA can prove that there's a problem. Pretty quickly, it turned out that the legal hurdles and the administrative hurdles to the EPA being able to prove that there was a problem with those existing chemicals, and that's still the bulk of chemicals. It was 62,000 at the time. The legal hurdles to EPA actually taking action on those chemicals proved insurmountable. They spent the 80s trying to regulate asbestos, and when they finally got around to a full-fledged rule that proposed to restrict asbestos, a federal court struck down the rule. And EPA basically gave up at that point on trying to restrict those chemicals that had, were on the market at the time the Tosca passed. And the chemical industry enjoyed that protection and didn't want to change Tosca until relatively recently. And what's been the incentive now for industry to stop its opposition to this and, and be willing to move forward? On additional regulations on toxic substances? There are three things that changed in the country and in the world in the 2000s, basically, that brought the chemical industry to the table. The first is that state governments started to 
fill the void and to review and restrict certain chemicals. And the pace of that state activity went from a couple of things here and a couple of things there to more comprehensive laws getting passed in different states. Then there was a phenomenon that the industry calls retail regulation, where you had Walmart, Target, and some others responding to consumer demands about avoiding certain toxic chemicals, and they started to just restrict them themselves. And the third major change is that Europe overhauled its chemical regulation in ways that started to set a new standard for the world and has set a new standard for the world. And so you have a lot of our trading partners around the world really keying off of what Europe is doing with chemicals instead of what the United States is doing. And all three of those things had the chemical industry say, well, wait a second, we'd rather have one-stop shopping in Washington for how chemicals are getting reviewed than all of these changes out there in the world. Andy, I think one of the core issues around the Toxic Substances Control Act has been that there are just thousands of chemicals in our country today that are waiting on some kind of review by the Environmental Protection Agency. How well would this version of the law equip the government to do the review that's necessary? Someone told me that the math under the present system, it would take a millennium to actually review all these chemicals. The review is still under either bill, the one that's passed the House or the one that's passed the Senate. The pace of reviews will be pretty glacial compared to the amount of chemicals that are in commerce. Basically, the House bill calls for EPA to review and potentially restrict at least 10 chemicals a year. The Senate bill has a schedule that is weaker than that, 25 chemicals over eight years. There's some differences. The Senate schedule is more enforceable. People outside could sort of sue EPA if it didn't make the schedule the way the House one is structured. You couldn't. But under either context, we're talking about some fairly slow progress. One of the questions is, can EPA only require testing for the chemicals that it is, at the moment, it's reviewing their safety? Or can it require testing of a batch of chemicals to help decide whether these are chemicals that need to be reviewed? and at least shine more of a light on more chemicals than just the ones that are under its lens at a given moment. And that's something that the bills differ on a little bit too. But at least EPA will be getting in on the the act of reviewing chemicals, but we're talking about a a pretty modest step when measured against the amount of unreviewed chemicals that are out there. Yeah, help me on the math on the unreviewed chemicals. How many thousand unreviewed? Officially, the Tosca inventory is up at around 84,000. 84,000 chemicals, 10 chemicals a year. At best, 10 chemicals a year. So that's 840 years. That's not quite 1,000 years. <laughs> it's not quite 1,000 years. I think it, the math of it is, is ridiculous. One of the things is most people agree, that's sort of the official tally of chemicals in commerce. Most people think that the number is probably half that or maybe less than that. So I think it's a little less stark than that those statistics make it sound, but it is still a problem. The earlier versions of reform that we had been pushing really called for grappling with that schedule in a more aggressive way, dealing with batches of thousands, but the chemical industry and others kept blocking that effort. So what we're looking at now is going to be a fairly limited set of reviews. They would still be meaningful compared to the status quo, because if EPA reviewed chemicals that are a problem right now, and really looked at all the uses of the chemical and either banned the chemical or restricted the uses to a few things where it's really necessary and where people aren't being hurt and they can demonstrate that, 
that would be progress. That would be you know potentially significant progress, even doing that for 10 chemicals a year compared to the status quo. But measured against the problem, it's, it's certainly not enough progress. Andy E. Gregis is director of Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today, Andy. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, many chemicals in common use have made things easier, from detergents and industrial lubricants to insecticides and flame retardants. But exposure to some of those same products might be working against our health. In particular, some common chemicals ingested during pregnancy seem capable of promoting obesity in offspring. It turns out that some children who were born in the Cincinnati area downstream from some industrial dumping in the Ohio River now have more fat if their mothers had roughly twice the level of a certain chemical in their blood during pregnancy. Dr. Joseph Brown, assistant professor of epidemiology at Brown University, is lead author of a study of these children in the journal Obesity. Dr. Brown, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So it's not ethical to test people by exposing them to possibly toxic chemicals. So in this case, I gather that upriver, up the Ohio River, there was some sort of a chemical dump containing these chemicals? Yeah, so what had happened in the past is there was a DuPont plant up in Parkersburg, West Virginia, that had been manufacturing fluoropolymers. So these chemicals have a variety of uses. They include being used in industrial processes as a surfactant to make fluoropolymers and to make other chemicals. They're also used to repel stains or to repel water as a coating in stain and water-resistant textiles. They're also used in some food packaging, places where you have both water and oil, and you don't want that water or oil to soak the paper that's being used as packaging. And they're also used in firefighting foams. And in the process of manufacturing these chemicals, they used one specific chemical called perfluorooctanoic acid. And up until 2000, they were releasing this chemical into the environment. So in this case, it's not necessarily how these women in Cincinnati were exposed to this chemical, but... A possibility. Exactly. We suspect that the vast majority of exposure to these chemicals comes from the diet. So we speculate that the elevated levels of this particular chemical, perfluorooctanoic acid or PFOA, could be related to the ingestion of contaminated drinking water. However, we're not able to show that in this study, and this is something we're trying to look at in our future work. Now, you suspect these chemicals are in a class that you scientists have called obesogens. What are obesogens and how do they affect people? So obesogens are chemicals that upon exposure to them may increase the risk of obesity or other diseases related to obesity like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And obesogens may work by affecting hormonal systems that are involved in programming fetal growth or growth in the child. They may also affect the programming of our appetite or metabolism, or they could affect how our genes are expressed. So what did you look for in your study exactly? We measured the concentration of several perfluoroalkyl substances in the blood of these women, including perfluorooctanoic acid, which we often call PFOA. So what we did is we looked at the relationship between levels of these chemicals in women's blood during pregnancy and their children's adiposity at eight years of age. The adiposity, you mean physical fatness? Yeah, we had things like body mass index, their waist circumference, and then an estimate of their total body fat percent in our study. So when you studied these pregnant women's exposure to perfluorooctanic acid, what did you find? So compared to children born to women in the lowest third of exposure to this chemical, PFOA, we found that the children born to women with higher concentrations of PFOA in their blood 
had 0.9 to 2.4 pounds more body fat at eight years of age. We worry about this for a couple of reasons. One is that any amount of increase in body fat is bad because it's very difficult to lose fat once you gain it. We can get children to lose weight, but it's difficult to get them to sustain that weight loss. And the decreases in weight aren't as big as we'd like. In addition, increases in body fat, any increase, even these small amounts, can be associated with later life risk of disease, like some cancers, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. How prevalent is PFOA among Americans these days? So levels of these chemicals have been going down over the last few years because they're being phased out of commerce voluntarily by the manufacturers that use and make them. However, they are still detectable in over 90% of people in this country. And we're concerned, though, as well, because these are persistent chemicals that have long half-lives in the environment, and they have a long half-life in our body. They can stick around in our body for over three years at a time, and so this is the concern. So we have this obesity epidemic in America. Two-thirds of us are overweight, fully a third are obese. What relationship, if any, do you think this is to the widespread exposure to PFOA chemicals? We don't know for certain that PFOA or this class of perfluoroalkyl substances is responsible for the obesity epidemic, nor do we know if the broader class of chemical obesogens is responsible for the epidemic. However, we do know that some chemical exposures, some of which we suspect are obesogens, could increase an individual's risk for obesity or increase their body fat. So we have only, I think, begun unpackaging these associations between obesity and genetics, environment, and other factors that we think contribute to obesity, like diet or lack of exercise. Joseph Braun is an assistant professor in epidemiology at Brown University. His paper is published in the journal Obesity. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. For years, anyone who questioned the safety of adding fluoride to the public water supply was seen as fringe and anti-science. Since shortly after World War II, fluoride has been added to water here in the U.S. to help strengthen children's teeth. And today, it comes out of the taps in about two-thirds of America's households. But recently, water fluoridation has come under closer scrutiny from science, and about 97% of tap water in Europe is now fluoride-free. Activists say it's time the U.S. took similar steps. Topical fluoride in the form of toothpastes and rinses seems to be effective in combating tooth decay, but studies now indicate swallowing fluoride with every drink of water could interfere with neurological development and thyroid function. Dr. Stephen Peckham of the University of Kent published a paper on the association between fluoridated water and underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism earlier this year. We looked at the levels of hypothyroidism in general practice populations across England and found an association or a risk of higher levels of hypothyroidism in practices in fluoridated areas. And in 2014, we spoke with Dr. Philippe Grandjean, professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, about his research that found a correlation between fluoride exposure in water and lower IQ. We looked at more than 20 studies from China where they had compared children exposed to high fluoride content in the water and low. 
And on the average, the difference in performance among those kids was seven IQ points. That's a sizable difference. And obviously, some of the kids have been exposed to substantial uh, fluoride concentrations in water. Some of them were just a little bit above what's common in this country. And therefore, I find that evidence very worrisome. And we need to follow up and determine if there is any risk in regard to fluoride exposure under U.S. conditions. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control maintains that water fluoridation helps to prevent cavities. But the Cochrane Collaboration, a global network of doctors and researchers who analyze science to improve public health, suggests the evidence is not so clear. The group found earlier this year that only three studies since 1975 have established credible links between fluoridated water and cavity prevention. Again, Dr. Peckham. Their main conclusions were that there was no evidence to suggest that it reduced inequalities in dental health, that there was no evidence to support it had a positive effect on adult teeth, and that there was no evidence to suggest that if you stop water fluoridation, levels of decay would increase. The Cochrane Group draws the line at 1975 because that's about the time when products like fluoride toothpaste, rinses, and treatments in the dentist's office became widely available. The group found strong evidence that fluoride can prevent tooth decay when applied topically. Fluoride that isn't swallowed doesn't carry the potential health risks to IQ and the thyroid that Drs. Ranjan and Peckham say are a concern. Dr. Peckham says we just don't know enough when it comes to fluoridated water. It's surprising that there hasn't been a lot of really good quality research looking at the effects of water fluoridation. And if you were to put water fluoridation up now as an intervention which was to be started, I suspect that on both scientific and ethical grounds, it would not be introduced. The lack of scientific research has caught the attention of activists, including Laura Turner Seidel, co-founder of the Atlanta-based Mothers and Others for Clean Air. Ms. Seidel is urging the CDC to stop endorsing water fluoridation and in the meantime says consumers should protect themselves from unwanted fluoride. And it's personal. Laura Turner Seidel told me she believes she has experienced the effects of fluoride in the public water supply. It's something that I became concerned about seven or eight years ago. I have a problem with my thyroid, and the doctor that I went to suggested that it could have come from overfluoridation, that I just had too much and that it compromised the function of my thyroid. So I started delving into it deeper. What exactly does fluoride do to our hormone system, to our endocrine system, to affect the thyroid, do you think? Well, first of all, in the 40s and 50s, fluoride was used as medication for people who had hyperthyroidism, which means that your thyroid produces too much of a good thing. And so it would push you more into the normal range. So if people in this country are exposed to this much fluoride in our drinking water and the food that we eat, the drinks that we drink, the soups that we consume, we're getting too much of a good thing. And it pushes you over into the hypothyroid category, which means that your thyroid is not producing enough of the hormones that your body needs. And it weakens your immune system. It causes your metabolism to slow down, weight gain, uh, things like that. What are some of the other likely effects of fluoride in the body? Well, 
what we found out from some of the research is that one in three African Americans have a condition called dental fluorosis. And that is the pitting and discoloring of the hardest surface in your body, your enamel. So either white spots or yellow spots, brown spots. And I think, you know, we need to be telling communities of low income and communities of color that there is fluoride in their drinking water and we should assist them by making sure that they have healthy alternatives. So what are some of the alternatives then for consumers who want to use fluoride to strengthen teeth enamel? Well, I'm not calling into question topical treatment and good oral hygiene that would include fluoride. I think that parents need to watch their children very closely because a lot of those toothpaste tastes like candy. They're bubblegum flavor, they're strawberry flavor, they taste really yummy to a young child. And children should not have more than a tiny amount, and a parent should be there to make sure that they spit it all out. So the bottom line is, if one can afford it right now, better to have either well water from a place that's not in the municipal system getting fluoridated, or to go for bottled water, as expensive as it is. Well, I, I would say so. It's something that I definitely don't want in my drinking water, but I have reverse osmosis in my house. So we can take the fluoride and other toxics out of our water. You know, if you can afford to have a system in your house, I would say do that. Or you can buy distilled water at the grocery store. But the best thing to do is to call the people in charge of the municipal water supply and let them know that you're not happy about it. Contact your elected officials. Contact the mayor of your city. There are about 99 cities around the country that have banned water fluoridation, and you can see which ones those are on the Fluoride Action Network website. Eco-living expert Laura Turno, Seidel's co-founder of Mothers and Others for Clean Air. Thanks so much, Laura, for taking the time with us today. Well, thank you, Steve. And for more information about organizations that are looking into fluoride, please go to our website, LOE.org. We're just a flock of turkeys who got the Thanksgiving blues. Yeah, we're just a flock of turkeys got the Thanksgiving blues. Yes, at Thanksgiving, the turkey reluctantly takes pride of place on dinner tables across America. Today, 99% of the turkeys Americans eat over the holidays are the same species, the broad-breasted white. But as people increasingly choose organic and locally grown food, interest in old-fashioned breeds of livestock, including turkeys, is rising. Ancient varieties of turkeys are enjoying a comeback, as living on Earth's Bobby Bascom discovered down on a farm in Massachusetts, the state known for the very first Thanksgiving. Kate Stillman runs a family farm. Behind her mustard-colored farmhouse, small fields bordered by stone walls are dotted with sheep and turkeys. But these are no ordinary turkeys. If you look at the heritage turkeys, their heads are beautiful. These are blue slates that we're looking at, and most of their head is this iridescent light sky blue color with a red neck. And, I mean, the colors are fantastic, but they're very reptile looking. Kate and her husband Aiden raised 50 heritage turkeys this year. They also raised about 200 of the more conventional white turkeys. 
the heritage ones are well they look like they don't have that big a breast you know they're a little leaner slimmer birds but a trim turkey with a small breast isn't what most people want on their thanksgiving table for whatever reason americans love the breast and the white meat andrew smith is a turkey historian he wrote the book on turkeys literally his book turkey an american tale traces the history of our favorite fowl the first European explorers took wild American turkeys back to Europe, where breeders started to raise them for their feathers. And that's their names, black and white and bourbon red and buff and slate, etc. The exception to that, of course, was the bronze turkey, which uh, was the largest heritage breed and had the largest breast. That broad-breasted bronze was crossed with the Holland white to create the turkey we know today. Seventy-three million of them will be eaten over the holidays. Smith says most of them are raised on factory farms. They've had their toes snipped off uh, a few days after their birth. They've had their beaks snipped off in order to uh, prevent uh, turkeys from attacking each other, which they do in confined spaces. Milton Madison, senior agricultural economist at the USDA, says most turkeys are kept in big barns. As for removing beaks and toes, he describes it as more of a turkey pedicure. At times, the... um toes and beaks will be trimmed slightly so that they're a little more blunt, you know, similar to trimming your fingernails so that you don't scratch yourself or others around you. Raising free-range heirloom turkeys is more expensive than mass-producing them. They cost three times as much to buy as babies and take several months longer to mature. A heritage turkey from the Stillmans will cost $100 compared with about 60 for the traditional birds. But people are willing to pay. Don Schreider of the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy says that's going to help save these birds from extinction. If people eat heritage turkeys, then more breeding stock is maintained, and then the next season more heritage turkeys can be produced. The number of heirloom birds has increased eightfold in the last 10 years. Farmer Kate says people like the taste of the old-fashioned birds. The heritage birds have a higher percentage of dark meat, which for dark meat lovers, I mean, that's usually the more flavorful part of the turkey. Almost everybody who ordered a turkey from us last year has ordered two turkeys. So I don't know whether they're thinking they're going to pop one in the freezer and keep it for Christmas or something like that, but people raved about the turkeys. The demand's been so great this year that the Stillmans actually ran out of heirloom birds. You know, I had somebody call me this morning, and she said to me, Oh, please, Kate, can, you know, can we get a turkey from you? We've been away. I really wanted to call, and she's a really good customer. We were supposed to be saving two turkeys for my aunt for Thanksgiving, and I called my mother, and I'm like, Well, you guys are only getting one turkey, because I really couldn't say no to her. And so come Thursday, the Stillmans might go without a heritage turkey at the center of their table but they'll have made a lot of Massachusetts families very happy. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. By the way, Stillman's Farm has grown since Bobby visited. This year, they'll sell some 100 heritage turkeys and 800 conventional ones. Well, that first Thanksgiving table in Plymouth, Massachusetts, featured a food more American than apple pie, the cranberry, or at least that's how the legend goes. 
Cranberries are one of the most healthful foods on the holiday table. But as Living on Earth's Emily Taylor found a few years ago when she headed to the cranberry bogs, that's not why people pile on the cranberry sauce. My name is Leo Kakunis, and uh, I run Cape Farm Supply and Cranberry Company. Naturally, what I think of when I hear the word cranberry is my mortgage payment, because we basically, uh, that's what we do for a living, is grow cranberries. Thanksgiving time. <laughs> so cook them up for turkey. Decoration with cranberries. I decorate during Christmas time with cranberries myself. Uh, I, I suppose cranberry sauce is, you know, having a like Thanksgiving dinner, definitely uh, the theme. There's a lot of nostalgia with cranberries uh, associated with Thanksgiving, and that's understandable. But uh, for us, it's a, it's a crop that we grow uh, for a purpose of uh, making a living. Uh, well, I used to go wild cranberry picking on the Cape with my dad. He would always take me up in the dunes and show me all the hot spots. Um, fifth grade. I don't know, I think I had a dream about a bog, like I was like in this cranberry, I don't know, it was kind of weird, but fifth grade. When I think of cranberries, I think of coyotes because on Cape Cod, there's tons of cranberry bogs and around them thousands of coyotes live there. Since I was a child, and I think I was fascinated the first time I saw a cranberry bog. Uh, bogs and uh, Cape Cod. The harvesting process of cranberries is probably the most interesting process because that's the time of year most people want to come and see a cranberry bog. Did you ever go to the cranberry bogs? Some of the houses are hewed out of logs. The walls are of boards, they are sawed out of pine that grow in this country called cranberry mine. There's two basic kinds of harvesting. There's the dry harvest. The dry harvest is done uh, first, usually mid-September. It's done when the bog has to be completely dry. That means no dew or anything on it. The dry harvesting produces what's called the fresh fruit which is the large cranberries that you buy in the store that the consumer ends up buying, uh, the actual cranberry itself. He eats them plain right out of the box. He and his sister both love to eat the cranberries plain. I actually eat them plain a lot. I remember going to the museum and seeing them bounce down the little stay away for grading. You know, we just pop them in our mouth. I feel very puckered up and feel like I'm gonna eat something sour and I'm not interested at all. The first time I had real cranberry sauce made with whole cranberries, I was uh, blown away, it was, it was marvelous stuff. The second kind of harvest, which is probably most familiar to people, is called the wet harvest. And we drive a machine out on the bog which beats the berries off the vine and then corral them with either boards or uh, a cranberry barrier. And then those berries are pumped or uh, loaded into a open truck with a conveyor. And then they're shipped to the supplier and they're actually called processed fruit. Those berries become your concentrate for drinks. They become your cranberry sauce. For years I had thought cranberry sauce was a stuff shaped like a can. When I was a kid, we the only cranberries we ever ate were you know, out of the can. But my mom, and it would, she would just put it on the plate like whole in this gelatinous mass you know, and she'd open up one end and it would just like ooze out the other end and be like the slurping sound. The uh, canned uh, cranberry sauce is almost never good. The stuff in the can, you just sort of squish it out of the can and it sits there and jiggles on the plate. Slice it. That's right, and you slice it, you can't even serve it with a, a spoon. The market for fresh fruit uh, hasn't really increased that much. Uh, there are still some people out there who are dedicated to buy fresh cranberries and serve them on their Thanksgiving table, and we think that's wonderful. But we are really working hard uh, producing new products, hoping that we can get into the candy market and the uh, cereal market, which will pretty much help us year-round, as opposed to waiting for one Thanksgiving dinner to pay our bills. Our Cranberry Audio Postcard was produced by Emily Taylor and Dennis Foley.
Coming up, tasting America's most unusual native fruit. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time to catch up with what's beyond the headlines now. Peter Dykstra is our guide. He's with the dailyclimate.org and ehn.org. That's environmental health news. And he's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. A not-so-veiled threat from the EPA caught my eye this week. The federal agency informed the state of North Carolina that its environmental enforcement and regulations are so weak that the feds may swoop in and take over. Well, that's a pretty serious move if it happens. How did it come to this? The big catalyst is a state effort to block local environmental groups from doing something that's a time-honored part of environmental politics, challenging pollution permits, in this case for a cement plant and a limestone quarry. EPA says the state should not shut out its own citizens from the process. North Carolina says it's all a big misunderstanding. The federal EPA has tangled with states before for failing to enforce federal pollution laws. But this action comes at a time when many states are already hauling EPA into court over clean energy and water pollution rules. And it's one to watch. This could play out over months or even years. I'm sure you'll help us keep an eye on it. What's next? Remember the uproar over the World Health Organization's report on red and processed meats and cancer risk? Of course. It was Bacon's Day in the Sun about a month ago. Well, I'd recommend against eating month-old bacon that's been left out in the sun. But at that apart, some have seen a sinister motive in all this much ado about meat. Social media, Rush Limbaugh, the Wall Street Journal, and Fox News smell a climate change conspiracy because, after all, large agriculture and meat are bad for the climate, right? A journal op-ed said the WHO report was, quote, particularly well-timed for the Paris climate talks. At least three different Fox News shows defended Bacon's honor while connecting those same dots. And Rush Limbaugh said, quote, these jerks at the United Nations are advancing a political agenda. So, Peter, did they offer any proof that this was a big conspiracy? <laughs> you and your proof. You know, that's why people hate journalists. We're talking about the United Nations against Bacon, for goodness sake. Yeah, so did they offer any proof? Steve, why do you hate Bacon so much? Oh, I get it. Obfuscation is the name of this game for this sizzling story, huh? Well, all right, let's pull something out of the history vault for this week instead. What you got? In November of 1869, the Suez Canal opened, and it changed a lot of things. The canal cut a few thousand miles off shipping between Europe and Asia. It hosted its first oil shipment via tanker in 1892, and the oil business certainly helped the canal become a strategic flashpoint, notably in 1956 when Israel, France, and Britain invaded Egypt, which caused the canal to shut for six months, all of which brings us to the environmental side. Uh, which is? Well, pretty much from its first days, Suez became a passageway for species as well as ships. Non-native jellyfish, crabs, and other sea life moved between the Red Sea at the south end of the canal and the Mediterranean at the north end. And since cargo ships have gotten a wee bit bigger since 1869, canals have to grow too. A major expansion plan for Suez has marine scientists worried that the wider, deeper canal could multiply the invasive species problem. And we've covered similar worries about the planned canal across Nicaragua, connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific. 
Well, they first tried to build the Nicaragua Canal around the same time as Suez, but it failed. And in 1914, the Panama Canal became the shortcut through the Americas. And one final note on the present rather than the past. Ken Cohen, the ExxonMobil spokesman, announced his retirement this past week. He's been much in the news lately, including an interview with you, Mr. Kerwood, a few weeks ago, responding for Exxon to news reports on how the company dealt with information from its own scientists on climate change over the years. Ken Cohen will turn 65 in January, which Exxon says is its mandatory retirement age. Well, folks who find themselves in the middle of a storm of criticism don't always answer interview requests. So whatever you think of the Exxon story... We were grateful that uh, Ken Cohen did agree to come on the show, and we wish him well in his retirement. Peter Dykster is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next time. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. This dusty old dust is getting my home, and I've got to be drifting along. The largest edible fruit native to the United States was once a treat and a source of sustenance for everyone from Native Americans to presidents to enslaved African Americans. Today, it can still be freely foraged in the forests of some 26 states. Chances are, though, you've never tasted and only ever sung about the pawpaw. Andrew Moore explores the economic, biological, and cultural reasons for our naivete about this singular fruit in his new book, Pawpaw, In Search of America's Forgotten Fruit. He joins us now. Andrew, welcome to Living on Earth. Steve, thanks for having me. You've brought in your book, The Pawpaw in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit, and you've brought in a pawpaw. Yes, a, a pawpaw itself. And this is maybe one of the, the last pawpaws that I'll, I'll be lucky enough to get this year. Well, describe it for us, would you please? It kind of looks to me like a small mango. It's very green. Some other people describe it, it kind of looks like a russet potato. And it's really fragrant. Really fragrant. The studio is really filled with the aroma now. I'd describe it as almost a mango aroma as well. So i got to ask what it tastes like. Sure. So I, you mentioned mango already, and a lot of people do describe it commonly as a cross between a banana and a mango. And what that's really getting at is that it has this unusual tropical flavor for an otherwise temperate fruit. And then, you know, the banana aspect gets at this creamy texture that the pawpaw has. Well, can I find out? Sure, yeah. Do you want to cut into it? Yeah, yeah. Right. okay. You go ahead. You're the expert cutter here. Well, the, the way I like to do it is to cut it in half, kind of like you might an avocado, and twist it apart like a double-stuffed Oreo. And then when you do that, what you reveal is essentially two cups of custard. Uh, uh -huh. And the, the pulp, as you can see, is, is this vibrant yellow, near orange in, in some places. And then you've also revealed a few rows of seeds down the center of the pawpaw. And these are large, black, lima bean-sized seeds that you can pick around or pull apart. Now, I think it's been 20 or 30 years since I've tasted a pawpaw. So here it goes. Mmm, well, that's really good. Does it taste like you remember? Yeah, it tastes, it's got this slight little tangy edge to the banana, but it's mango. But no, wait, it's banana. But wait, it's mango, and it's delicious. You know, there are a lot of things that one can do in life, Andy. Why have you spent so much time researching, traveling around, paying attention to the pawpaw? What drew you to the pawpaw? When I learned about it, first of all, what happened was I was captivated. I was at the Ohio Pawpaw Festival, and out in the woods, outside of the festival fairgrounds, is a patch of wild pawpaws. 
And the experience of picking pawpaws from the trees, of picking them up from the ground, this wild bounty, this tropical tasting fruit that I had never heard of, that none of my family or, or most of my friends had never really heard of this thing. I was fascinated that something this good, this large, it's the largest edible fruit in the Native American woods, that it could be so unknown. And so I just wanted to learn more. So I, I just kept researching and, and looking online. And, and I met the people who were working with pawpaws and was certain that I wanted to write a story because I realized it had a really compelling human story as well. So you started on a pawpaw quest. What's it like to go pawpaw hunting? It's a lot of fun. And that was another reason why I set out writing the book was just it was really fun to go to these places, whether it was wild patches on the banks of the Mississippi or, or whether it was Monticello and, and Mount Vernon or an experimental orchard where people were growing pawpaws and doing selective breeding. It was just a lot of fun to go to these places and, and meet these people. By the way, describe the pawpaw tree for me. What's sure. it look like? Yeah, the, the pawpaw tree, uh, and again, it's confusing to me as to why it would be so unknown because the tree is beautiful as well. It has this lovely pyramidal shape when grown in full sun, and it has these long tropical-looking leaves. They're among the broadest and, and longest leaves you'd find in the eastern forests. And in fall, they turn a, a striking yellow. And where can you find pawpaws? I often say that the pawpaw is a river fruit. It's native to 26 states in the eastern U.S., and many of these rivers in these states are, in fact, lined with pawpaws in the deep alluvial, rich soil. And so that's a good place to start looking for them. So how come most of us have never heard of the pawpaw? Right. Well, I call it the forgotten fruit. That's in the subtitle. Certainly some people have maintained memories of pawpaws. But for the most part, we stopped knowing pawpaws when, when we stopped going to the woods for food. In the middle of the last century, you know, with the rise of supermarkets and, and global food and industrialized foods, our diets became a lot more homogenized and industrial. And something that you would have to go to the woods to gather was left by the wayside. And pawpaw is not the only food, certainly, that we stopped eating and, and that we had neglected. You know, there were so many heirloom fruits and vegetables. You know, we had thousands of apples and, and old tomatoes. And so pawpaw is among those fruits that were lost, but that thankfully we're seeing a revival of. So since it's free and available in the wild and such, what's your favorite survival story of somebody who needed the pawpaw to get over whatever challenge they were meeting? Well, among the early stories are uh, Lewis and Clark subsisting on pawpaws at the end of their expedition along the Missouri River. They had completely run out of food, and all they had was the wild bounty of pawpaws. And, and some people, when they talk about it, they'll say that the pawpaw saved them from hunger or they were near starvation. But in reality, there were just so many pawpaws that was never a concern. They were all content and happy and just eating pawpaws for three days. So historically, how did Native Americans use the pawpaw? Unfortunately, there, there's not a lot of citations for Native American foodways before Europeans. There are some citations that survive that, that we pawpaw people are thankful for. The Iroquois, for one, are cited as having dried pawpaws and cooked them into corn cakes, which I found fascinating because corn is low in niacin and pawpaw is high in this nutrient. It's high in antioxidants and, and some of the same antioxidants that are found in red wine and chocolate. We also know that it's high in, you know, various vitamins, vitamin A, C, potassium. These old folkways, they develop for a reason, and, and there's a lot of wisdom in them. What's the relationship between the pawpaw and people of color? Enslaved African Americans, they were looking to supplement diets. If they had the liberty to pick things from the wild, pawpaw would have been one of those things that they could have gathered each year. 
as well as, you know, on the Underground Railroad, um, slaves seeking freedom in the north. Papa would have kept people alive as they were going north. So as you went on your odyssey around America looking for Papa, how many festivals did you get to? There were two prominent festivals that I went to when I was researching. The Ohio, which is a large gathering now in its 17th year, around 8,000 people come out every year for that. And then in North Carolina, which was newer at the time, which is also growing. But now there's festivals in Rhode Island, in Maryland, in York, Pennsylvania. They're just popping up everywhere. And it's, so it's a, it's a really fun time for pawpaw people. And how do people who hunted and ate pawpaws a long time ago, say as kids, how do they react now when they taste their first pawpaw in decades? Oh, it's, it's a really fun thing to share pawpaws with people who haven't had it in decades. You know, they, they remember it. They say, oh, I, I used to love eating these as kids. We'd go on the river and, and pick them. Or, you know, if they were uh, coming home from school, this was candy for them. You know, they didn't have access to all these sweet foods like we do today. So it was such a, a cherished treat. And it really seems like a personal fruit. Everyone has these personal memories of, of gathering pawpaws. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that Children, they did wander and, and gather these, but it, they were also shown this by loved ones, uh, grandparents or parents. It was like a, a family tradition to go in and gather these things. The pawpaw place. Yes, the pawpaw place, the picking place. What are the various ways that people eat and I guess can even drink pawpaws these days, huh? Yeah, these days, uh, the sky's the limit with what you can do with pawpaw. And, you know, it's an interesting time. Um, there are some great recipes out there, but I think the best things that you can do with a papa are, are perhaps yet to be seen uh, as people start experimenting with it. I make a, a pretty good papa ice cream, papa gelatos, sorbets. These are all very wonderful. Creme brulee even. And recently at the Ohio Festival, I tasted papa cello, so like a lemon cello, a hard papa lemonade. And uh, there were 11 papa beers on hand. I didn't get a chance to drink all of them. That's right. I mean, good sweet fruit can lead to booze. Booze, absolutely. And, and that's a tradition that goes as far back as, you know, the 17, 1800s. People in, around Pittsburgh and in the Ohio Valley down through Ohio were making pawpaw brandy and, and liquor and beer. And uh, it's been known to be a strong alcohol, even from those days on through today. Pawpaw kapow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the challenges of cultivating and marketing pawpaws? Often it's said that the pawpaw's short shelf life and its fragility is why it has not been cultivated. That's a good starting place for talking about problems in domesticating the pawpaw. It is soft and it does have a short shelf life. So it's, it's not necessarily a fruit that lends itself well to sitting on the back of a truck and going to distribution centers and then sitting on a supermarket shelf for several weeks. So it's just going to have a different niche. It's maybe not going to be something that's found in every Walmart across the country, but it's, it's more likely something that will be found at farmer's markets and local food co-ops. And on the menu of perhaps a local restaurant. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing that more and more from New York to Missouri, chefs are adding it into their, their menus and doing wonderful things with it. Now, at one point in your book, you write about Neil Peterson working to improve pawpaw traits. Tell me a bit of his story. Sure. He's often described as a, a Johnny Pawpaw Seed kind of character. He was a grad student at WVU, and he tasted his first pawpaw along the banks of the Monongahela. And like myself and like so many others, he was excited and eager to, to learn more. And as a plant scientist and as a horticulturalist, Neil had the, the skills to try to do something with it. And so he set about doing a breeding experiment. And he started crossing the country himself, seeking out old plantings and old cultivars from 50, 60 uh, years ago 
when people had a greater interest in pawpaw and had started selecting pawpaws and naming them. So he planted two orchards with well over a thousand trees and after several decades selected the best pawpaws and released them to the public. Neil named his, his pawpaws after American rivers with Indian names uh, in tribute to the original horticulturalist of the fruit. So Susquehanna, Shenandoah, Potomac, those are Neil's pawpaws, and, and they're considered by many to be among the best that are available. Andy, uh, could you please read from your book? I'd be happy to. Just describe for me what's going on here when the search for the Ketter fruit. Yeah, in, in Ironton, Ohio, I had uh, been looking for the lost Ketter fruit. It was uh, the prize-winning fruit from the 1916 contest for the best pawpaws in America, and I spent about three days searching for it. In the morning, after a biscuit and fried apple breakfast, I decided to look for the trees planted by the uncle of my waitress at Jim's. Since the Ketter fruit has thus far eluded me, it would be a boost to my sleuthing esteem to at least track down something. I find them, a massive pair, each 30 or 40 feet tall, reaching above the power lines, and more or less right where she said they would be, their leaves a deep green fading to yellow at the top of each pyramidal shape. They've managed to make a Bradford pear and black walnut look small in comparison. I stand in the grass, taking photos, when a neighbor calls out to me from the, her porch across the road. Some people want to cut those trees down, she says. I ask why and who. Just some neighbors on the block, she says. They just want them gone, don't want them anymore. I told her I don't see any sense in that, that they are good trees. Tell me about it, she says. I'm confused by all of it. But at least it offers some explanation as to why some things disappear. Whims of the obstinate. How many of these do you have in your backyard now? I have three trees in my backyard. It's a small backyard, otherwise I might have more. <laughs> and are they big enough to produce fruit yet? I'm hoping to get my first fruit next year, actually. The flower buds have already formed, and I'll see them next spring, and hopefully we get some fruit. So where, where is little Andy? <laughs> Way down yonder. <laughs> in his pawpaw patch, huh? Andrew Moore is a writer and gardener living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just within the range of the pawpaw. Pawpaw is his first book. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time. Steve, thanks so much for talking to me. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. We're joined by a new intern today, Amber Rodriguez. Welcome aboard. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI Public Radio International.